Hi, welcome to Bread. Over the next two weeks, we're giving special attention to the stories of Jesus in the week leading up to his death and resurrection. We believe this moment changed the course of human history for all time. God continues in this personal and global trajectory-changing work by His Spirit. Take a listen. Um, I think I say this every year, um, but it always gets me on Easter Sunday, just the very thought of how many people around the world, following the Gregorian calendar at least, um, are saying this and doing this together. And I think it's something that is particularly poignant at the minute, and maybe, maybe I just forget this year on year, but it does feel like division is increasing year on year. That despite the number of languages this is spoken, however many different beliefs are represented by this, values, liturgical practices, creeds, position, by all of the ways in which we don't agree, even as Christians, about what living out this life as Christians is actually all about. This is what we do agree on, and this is what it is all about. The whole thing about a God, the God, who gave himself, who poured himself, who came to earth and lived as a brown-skinned Palestinian Jew, who taught us how to do it, who experienced the breadth and depth of humanity and died and in doing so took death with him. All separation that has ever occurred and will ever occur between us and the maker of the heavens and the universe and his love. And then he rose again He came back to life in a human body and walked around and talked among his followers before ascending to heaven and pouring out his spirit. The good news that we all agree on and celebrate every day of the year that changes forever. And today, can we do it again? Can we do it again? And as we do it, can I encourage you in this moment, saying this, knowing we're saying this with Christians all around the world, despite our differences. Can I encourage you to picture in your mind the Christian you think you disagree with the most about what the Christian life is about, because we are called to unity with all of them. Can you picture yourself looking them in the eye? Can you picture yourself holding their hand? As I say, he is risen. And you say, hallelujah. Good, isn't it? If we haven't met, my name is Hannah and I lead this uh, with Ed. Um, This is not what I had planned for my life. Uh, My parents are still China missionaries, they live in Taiwan. Um, And in my childhood, my dad was also a pastor. Uh, So I have both PK and MK baggage, which excuse the jargon, basically it just means um, I've got all the potential to be really, really messed up in my faith. Um, we are very, very passionate here that this Christianity thing is not a religion. We don't really like the word religion very much at all. We much prefer relationship. And that is what I eventually found against the odds for myself in my mid-twenties after a decade or so of sojourning. Stories like we heard this morning, I believe, for those 
of us here, those like me, who are most committed to this thing, who really, really love this, this Jesus thing that we do, they still serve as a massive boost of faith to us, don't they? To hear uh, Jess and Logan, who, you know, weren't raised, weren't indoctrinated with this, weren't told this is who they had to be, and to hear Les, who has every reason to never, ever, ever want to come into church and do this Jesus thing again, to hear them talk about what they have found for themselves, not because they had to, but because they experienced it, that they experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit, that they, they stopped feeling homesick. I can't tell you the number of people that we have met who have felt this is walking into church, this feeling of like belonging and home that we all long for. This understanding that we're not just loved but liked by God, who puts a new song in our mouths. When people who aren't indoctrinated to believe this come to believe this, it's very, very, very faith-affirming for the rest of us, isn't it? And I say this as somebody, you know, I really do believe it. I really do. Like, I spend a lot of time reading the Bible. I really am a big fan of the Bible. And I, you know, I, I, I moved my whole family with Ed across the world to do this thing. We really believe in church. We really believe in the power of the gospel. Because it turns out LA can't even promise us the weather that we came here for anymore. <laughs> for goodness sake. Um, I've seen stuff. I know, I've experienced things that I cannot explain. I say this as somebody that I still need to hear these stories as somebody who has seen supernatural things before my eyes that science cannot explain. My big sister had a car crash, absolutely catastrophic car crash that left her... She was in hospital in traction for three months, and at the end of that three months, when she was released from hospital, she had a very profound limp, and she, her vocal cords had been ruptured, and the doctor said, That's, you're never, there's nothing we can do to your vocal cords. So she was limping, and she, she sort of spoke in that kind of, she could, we could hear her if everything else was quiet, but she was told, you're never gonna get your voice back. And in two separate healing experiences, one of which I witnessed, I watched her leg grow and I watched her stand up and no longer have a limp. And another one, her voice came back after being prayed for overnight. She woke up singing in the morning and her voice is completely restored. And I could tell you many, many, many other stories. We've had incredible experiences, not loads of them, but some experiences of healing here. And we don't know why it doesn't always happen, but we do know that it does happen sometimes. So if you are sick and if there is something wrong with your body, we will pray for healing for you and with you because we know that Jesus does it. I have also lived in, in other countries and traveled in other countries who are much, much more open to the spiritual realms of life than we are. And I have seen deliverances. I have seen people set free from things that were holding them down. I have seen the power in Jesus' name, and yet I still need the faith that I hear from these stories. It's so beautiful, isn't it? We're very, very grateful for all of you that shared that with us this morning. Last week, if you weren't here, um, we heard an absolutely fantastic sermon from Ben on uh, Palm Sunday in sort of setting the scene for the Easter weekend and what it would have been like to have been alive as a Jew, um, in Jerusalem at Passover in 33 AD. So he talked about all these followers of God waiting for their Messiah, believing that Jesus could actually be him, welcoming him in. 
until he said things and proved and, and did things that proved to them that he wasn't he wasn't the Messiah that they thought he was. And in such a short period of time, before last week and, in, and this week, they'd gone from welcoming him in as their Messiah to calling him a criminal worthy of execution. Ancient Roman historians um, make a very interesting point about crucifixion that it's quite easy for us to miss with our sort of um, culturally normalized cross-shaped symbolism and the comfort that we have with that. We see them everywhere. We've normally got one there. We wear them around our necks. We just see crosses everywhere. But I think we kind of miss sometimes what they actually meant. There's not actually, interestingly, a lot of historical um, evidence about crucifixions written down by the Romans who were notoriously good at writing things down uh, because they didn't like to dwell on crucifixion because what they represented was suffering and humiliation. Um, and, and it was a fate that was only given to the, the people that the Romans classed as the lowest of the low, things like slaves who tried to escape and the absolute worst criminals. These executions weren't just about the physical agony that was caused by them and the um, protracted period. Sometimes they lasted for days. It was quite unusual for Jesus' death on the cross to only last as long as it did. The point of, the, of crucifixion was the protracted suffering in public. It was so that people could gather and watch. Sometimes they laughed, um, but just observe and have the shock and disgust of just this unthinkable agony. Tom Holland, who is uh, a, a Roman historian, not the Spider-Man one, it would be really strange time to start talking about him, wouldn't it? Um, he's an he's a ancient Roman historian who himself found faith studying the impact of this particular crucifixion um, and, that, and what that had on the Roman and Greek world. Um, and he makes the point that the body of a crucified rebel against Rome served as a kind of billboard. That's what they did it for. It was like a, just a giant sign going, look what will happen if you mess with Rome. It is just utterly unthinkable to that crowd, the ones who'd welcomed him in and then rejected him and said he deserved execution, that Jesus' death on a cross could be any other, anything other than the final pathetic fate of another false messiah. It was ridiculous that God chose this death. The cross is foolishness, said Paul. Uh, Constantine, the Roman emperor who brought Christianity into the empire a few hundred years later, um, he didn't want the, the cross depicted at all in Roman Christianity. It has always been uncomfortable that Jesus lived and died the way that he did. Almost everyone had turned on him, denied him, and fled. And just a small group were left in John's gospel when Jesus gave up his spirit and died. A group of women, his mother, Mary Magdalene, and a few others, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, they take his body and they wrap it in the spices and the linens, as we know. And they do this hurriedly because night is falling and it was Sabbath the next day. Do you think we can imagine their agony as they ro rolled the stone closed? The devastation and the loss, not just of a son, a teacher, a friend, of their hopes of everything they had believed, even when others turned. 
daylight fades and they return to the city where they've got to wait for Sabbath Saturday to come and go before they're allowed to do anything else. Their dream of this glorious kingdom that Jesus said he was going to bring is now gone. And they're also probably quite likely scared that soldiers are going to come for them as well. This is the ultimate all is lost. This is utter devastation. So this is where we'll pick up in John chapter 20. As soon as Mary Magdalene is allowed, it says, early the next day, while it was still dark, she went to the tomb. Uh, other gospels say that other women were present, but John only mentions Mary Magdalene, which is a detail I'll come back to in a minute. She saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple reached the tomb first. You've got to love the healthy ego of John, who's the writer, who is most people believe the beloved disciple, the one who's the other disciple that's running faster than, than Peter. Um, <laughs> he really labors the point that he's a good runner, as well as calling himself the beloved disciple all the way through it. You've got to love that. So John's got there first. <laughs> he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who'd reached the tomb, tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They, did not, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying, which is interesting. Nothing, no angels appear to them because they've got, they just leave. They go, he's not here. We've got to go back and I don't know, we should talk about what we're going to do next. Now Mary, alone again, stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not recognize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. We need to just pause here to note the absolute scandal of this. This is it. The first moment recorded in the gospel, the very moment of the announcement, he is risen and this changes everything now. And he didn't appear with bright lights, fires from heaven on a mountaintop, or even to the chief priests in the temple, you think that's maybe where he would go. He didn't even appear to his disciples, the ones who knew him and had heard him the most. There was no fanfare of chorus of angels in the sky. He comes to Mary Magdalene, 
All four gospel writers agree on this, and they don't agree on loads of details about loads of things about what they recorded about Jesus' life, ministry, and teachings, and the order that they happened in, as you'd kind of expect from eyewitness accounts um, that weren't written down for a number of years. Including the details, they don't agree on the details of uh, what we celebrate on Easter Sunday in this story here in the garden. They don't agree on the number of women at the tomb. They don't agree on the presence of soldiers, whether they were there or not. But they all agree it was Mary Magdalene who Jesus first appeared to. So let's spend just a minute with this. The way Jesus treated women was unparalleled in ancient history. It's always worth just reminding ourselves how women were perceived in this time within the broad context of Hebrew culture. Their, their status has actually taken a steep downturn um, in the era preceding this to the Greeks and Romans too. This is just how the world was. Wives were a possession. Daughters were a disaster. No education, no rights, no say. Women's testimony was inadmissible in any legal proceeding. In fact, Celsus, who is a Greek philosopher living about 100 years uh, after this and a hater of Christ and his followers, he denigrates the whole movement on the very basis of it being a woman's testimony that was first received. He said, how can any rational man take the words of a hysterical woman deluded by sorcery? We've heard that one before, have we? <laughs> it's actually one of the things that if you stop and think about it, makes the evidence for the resurrection quite compelling if evidence is one of the things that you're here for today. Because if you were going to make up an ending to a, the very historically verifiable life and death of Jesus Christ, if everything that happened, he, he lived and he made this splash like a bunch of other Messiah-claiming figures in the Holy Land in this era. This is all recorded in history books. But then he was just executed and then he was dead. If all that's really happened, but you want to make up a better ending about it, about him rising to life, you absolutely would not have a woman's testimony anywhere near this. And yet every single account of it in our Bibles agree that it was Mary. Many uh, people believe that she was uh, known as Mary Magdalene because she's on a, from a fishing village named Magdala, where she worked as a prostitute. Actually, it was a a sixth-century pope who first uh, implied the prostitute part. Um, there's no biblical evidence for it, and nowhere are we told that she was especially sinful. Actually, there's also no um, historical evidence that the town uh, called Magdala existed until about 200 years after this. <clears throat> what we do know is from Mark and Luke's account um, that she was uh, one of Jesus' closest friends and followers who had earlier been delivered of seven demons. Seven being the number of perfection and totality. She was perfectly ineligible. Completely the wrong person for this task of being the first human witness and announcer of the resurrection of the Son of God. Apart from her absolute devotion to the one who had delivered her and saved her, the one who had let her accompany him on journeys. To be clear again, women were not permitted to travel because they weren't allowed to sleep anywhere other than the home of relatives. Nor were they permitted to sit at the feet of rabbis, nor speak to him at a well, nor touch him if they were bleeding. But Jesus defied those conventions again and again and again. Mary and um, other women who were known to have traveled with him throughout Galilee accompanying him 
They were with him before the crowds recognized him, after they did, and after the crowds had changed their minds. For Mary, even this barbaric, humiliating death, which she had assumed was the end, hadn't stopped her devotion to him. And as soon as she's allowed to come back to his tomb, she's here before daybreak the next morning. I'm rather compelled by theories that her name was nothing to do with a fishing village, but that she was given that name by early Christians or maybe even Jesus himself. In Aramaic, Magdala means tower. Mary the tower, kind of like Peter the rock. The one whose faith, recognition of what Jesus was doing and saying and devotion to her teacher who loved her, we can all look up to. It was always the Mary Magdalene's that God chooses. It's not the mighty Persians or the Assyrians, but the lowly Israelites. It's not the fearsome warriors, but the shepherd boys with slings who inaugurates the kingdom. It's Hagar's, the dejected slave girl running away from her abuser who was the very first to name God in the whole of the Bible. She calls him the God who sees me. He always uses Marys. He uses them so that other Marys know that he sees them too. And he uses them so that those who don't think they're Marys can know that it is not by who they are or what they do or what they say or what they can prove or what they can tell God they're doing for him, but because of him, because this is the way of his kingdom. I have one more little reflection on the resurrection account before we take communion. There's more uh, meaning than we might immediately realize um, from the fact that John mentions that Mary thinks that Jesus is a gardener. Throughout his gospel, John has evoked many aspects of the original creation at the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, was uh, the word is how he famously starts his gospel, and he repeatedly uses language to draw his readers back to these original stories, the ones where God had planted a garden, cultivated it, and walked in it, according to Genesis 2 and 3. And John has built up this imagery for an important reason. The tomb being in a garden near the place of crucifixion is actually very unlikely because Golgotha was a rubbish heap, it was a dump. But John 19, um, the chapter before this, tells us that there was a garden there. In the next verses, Jesus will greet the disciples and breathe on them saying, receive the Holy Spirit, evoking the exact same language used in Genesis of the way that God gives life to Adam when he'd formed him from the earth. And just look at what this woman is reversing here when she goes announcing words of life to the apostles just as the first woman had announced words of death to the first man. Here in this garden, Jesus has risen and destroyed all the works of sin and death all of everything that fell and is fallen. Gardener is such a visceral image, isn't it? Both of God, the creator, and Jesus, the recreator. He is a gardener with his hands right here in the dirt from which he forms man, and here in the rubbish dump of Golgotha, even in his moment of victory over death. And now he walks 
in the early morning sunlight speaking to his friend. I had a very unlikely spiritual experience this week. I was in the penultimate row of basic economy on Delta Airlines with a child who'd been vomiting asleep in my lap, drinking what I'm very confident was the world's worst cup of coffee. And in order to try and escape this hell that I was in, um, with a very, very overdue or delayed flight, um, I put on a movie like we all do. And it was a film called Montana Story, which I don't know, I'd never heard of it, I just put it on out of curiosity. It's a beautiful film. If you really like slow, moody family drama, it's for you, absolutely gorgeous. Um, it's about um, a, a, a father who is in a coma and dying, and two, his two estranged children who are coming back after years of not seeing each other. And there's, there's lots of uh, difficult stuff that they have to deal with, and there's sort of the mystery of what, what trauma it is that's happened between them. And it's sort of told kind of centrally through the hospice nurse who's played by this beautiful um, Kenyan actor called Gilbert Orwar, um, who is just sort of there, steady the whole time, helping them and, and talking to them and looking after um, the dad who's in a coma, even though he knows he, he was a pretty terrible guy. It's a very, very Christ-like figure, now that I stop and think about it. But there's this moment in the... Um, in the film where the son is, is starting to tell him a bit of what's happened. He's getting really upset about you know, bankruptcy and all the stuff that they've got to sort out. And the hospice nurse just sort of says, it's okay, this is very hard, but I am here. And I was not feeling spiritual in any way, I would like to point out, but I had a very profound experience in my body in a way that I've come to recognize the Holy Spirit of just kind of just what my body does when I receive that amount of love. I usually cry. It's a miracle that I'm even talking about it without crying, which really doesn't help me with the selfishness of the world and hysterical women. But it is just who I am. Um, I just really felt very, very strongly, like Jesus said, this is exactly what I am like. This is very hard, but I am here. Jesus is with you his hands in the dirt of the garden. There's mud under his fingernails and it's my mud and it's your mud and it's the mud of things other people have done to you. It's the mud of the things that we're scared about. It's the mud of all it is, of what it is to be alive as human beings. And he's not going anywhere. And it's such a funny juxtaposition, isn't it? When we sing these phenomenal songs and we stamp our feet and it's just so good to remember that Jesus triumphed, that this is done, that he has won this battle, but also we're still here. Until the next thing happens, we're still here and he says, I will not leave you, I am with you in the dirt of the garden. So come now. We're going to take communion. Come and receive him.